Amen. That was one of my mother's favorite hymns when uh, we were growing up to be thou my vision. So, hey, as a chapel joins us as the venue, as Cactus and Northridge, as well as those watching online, you're going to be encouraged today, I promise you, uh, in the Word of God. We're going to look at just four verses as we continue on in this series, but they are four very power-packed verses. In fact, your head's going to be spinning a little bit as we look at all that Jesus says to us, but hang in there with me today because these are probably four of the most encouraging verses for a believer that you're going to find in the scripture. So with that said, Chapel and Venue and Northridge Cactus, all of us, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in the word. Father, I thank you for the worship that we have had over the last half an hour. I thank you for the story that we heard, an encouraging story of how when you enter into our lives, you bring a level of healing and hope that the world cannot offer. And Lord, we're going to see why that is so today. We're going to see how this giving of your Holy Spirit is not just to convict as we saw last week, but now to guide us in ways that can't help but be encouraging in our lives. So as we go deeper, Lord, into the scriptures today, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. May we understand rightly the words of Jesus and apply them diligently to our lives. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a good starting place. I don't care how self-sufficient or independent you might be in your life. Here's my point. All of us need a bit of guidance every now and then. It's true. We live in a very self-sufficient, independent time in the history of the world where we have a lot of resources around us to live very separate lives if we want to, but all of us reveal in our behavior that there are times that we need guidance. So, for instance, I'm the kind of man who doesn't like to ask directions. Any of you can relate to that? I just hate it. It's a wound to my pride. And so whenever I go anywhere, I am fully prepared. I have Google Maps. Many times I have printed maps. I have researched the area that I'm going to so that I know what I am doing and where I am going. But there have been times where even my best planning and efforts have needed some supplemental guidance. It happened about 15 years ago. I was at my previous church and we were taking an investigative trip to Shanghai, China. And I'd never been to the Far East, to Asia before. And so I again mapped it out and, and looked where we were staying. And I noticed we were staying at the Holiday Inn in downtown Shanghai there. And so when we got there, we were meeting with various missionaries and organizations. And one particular afternoon we had free. And I decided to do some wandering on my own. So I, I was with my wife and two other couples from our church, but I said, Kim, you take a nap, I'm gonna go wander. And as I wandered around Shanghai, I was just enamored with the different culture. And at one point I realized I was lost. And I thought, no big deal. I've been lost in Memphis. I've been lost in, you know, Phoenix. I've been lost in lots of places. But I realized being lost in Shanghai is a very different experience than anywhere else because I started stopping people to ask them for directions. And none of them spoke a lick of English. And I didn't speak Mandarin. So then I looked at, at signs and all the signs imagine, were written in Chinese and I couldn't read any of them. And I actually started to panic a little bit. And so I thought of my cell phone, but this was 15 years ago. And international plans were extremely expensive. And I realized I didn't put an international plan on my phone. We put it on the elder's phone, but not on mine. And he was back at the hotel. 
And so there I am starting to panic a little bit of how am I going to find back to my hotel? I mean, I, I really was out of options. And all of a sudden, I'm going up an elevator in this mall, and there's a white guy coming down the elevator next to me. And I looked at him, and I said, true story, I said, hello. And he looked back at me, and he said, hello. And I said, thank God. And I meant it literally, thank God. I said, you speak American. And he looked at me, and he said, English, actually. And I realized he was British. And he was kind of snooty. Not that all Brits are snooty, but this guy kind of was. And I said, I don't care how snooty you are. How do I get back to my hotel? And he was an expat, and he knew exactly where the Holiday Inn was, and he gave me the guidance that I needed. A bit wounding to my pride, but I needed it. Here's my point. I don't care how independent, how self-sufficient you might be, all of us could tell a story like I just told. Now, here's why that's important. I want you to think about this. If this is true when it comes to things like being lost in Shanghai or with your job when you need training or with your hobby when you need to learn how to do it or even with things like parenting and marriage, we all get guidance now and then there. Imagine how true this must be when it comes to God. I mean, there are times where you and I get lost in Shanghai, this side of heaven, and need some guidance. But imagine being lost in the cosmos. That's Walker Percy's phrase, where you and I, from birth, are separated from God, and we don't know him coming out of the womb. Imagine being lost when it comes to God and the need that you and I have for some guidance. See, every religion at least admits that. When you look at other world religions, the one theme that they all have is that we can't find God on our own, that God has to find us, and he's got to give us a little bit of help if we're ever going to have a relationship with him. And what the Bible makes clear to us is that the good news, it literally calls it good news, is that God understands this. He understands that we need guidance in our life when it comes to knowing him and navigating the spiritual realm. And he has seen fit to give us all the guidance we need. Now here's the deal. And it centers around a person that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. So as we make our way through John chapter 16 in the series of messages that we have called, He Walks With Me, I want us to read together the next installment, John 16, verses 12 through 15, just four verses. And so as I read the gospel, why don't you guys stand right now and campuses and venues, even if you're at home right now and you can... Stand right now, it's respectful, and just follow along as I read these four verses. Jesus is speaking, and try to dial in as to what this guidance thing is all about. This is what he says. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, as I said, that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
And so here's the deal. I only got a couple of points for you today. I warn you right now, we're going to spend the vast majority of it on point one, because this is really the heart of what Jesus is saying here. And this is what he's saying. And that is that the Holy Spirit is the one who will guide you, he's personalizing it, into what is right and real. The Holy Spirit is given in great part to guide the believer into the kind of truth that makes your life right and real. So notice with me how Jesus puts this in verse 13. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Twice there, it mentions this idea of truth. And before we get to that word, here's what you need to know. Uh, the Spirit was given, because it's saying here that it's kind of a future tense, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes. The Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. Uh, so just a few weeks after Jesus spoke these words, the, Jesus now ascended into heaven. The original disciples are huddled together in a kind of a small group there in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And the Bible makes it clear that from that point on, the Spirit is now given to the church. The Spirit is now given to you. The Spirit is given, as Jesus says in John 14, to inhabit believers, literally, literally live inside of us to be and do a lot of things for us. And though there are many things that the Spirit will do and be for us, and as we walk with God and he walks with us, don't miss it. What Jesus is saying here in John 16 is that one of the primary things is that he will guide us into all truth. Now, let's get to that word truth there because Jesus uses it twice here. He calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth and says he will guide us into truth. That word truth in the original language that John was written in is the Greek word aletheia or aletheis and it's one of the most power-packed loaded words in all of the New Testament. I actually write an entire chapter about this word in my book, How Joyful People Think. Chapter two is committed to just this one word, this word true or truth because it's so pregnant with meaning. And just by way of review, because this is important for how Jesus uses this word here, you might remember if you read the book that the heart of the chapter is making the point that when you trace all the usages of this word truth throughout the New Testament, now watch this, it falls neatly into two different categories, what I call transcendent truth and then personal truth, transcendent truth and personal truth. That's how this word is used in the New Testament. Transcendent truth is the truth of God. It's truth that is out there. It's truth that exists in the whole universe because it's absolute, it's universal. It's true whether you believe it or not. So a non-spiritual example of a, of a transcendent truth is a mathematical equation. Two plus two equals, say it with me, we do not know of a universe in which two plus two equals five. Think about that. In other words, it's a universal, absolute, non-changing entity or truism that two plus two equals four. It's a transcendent truth. It's not just personal to you, it's personal to everybody. It's out there to be discovered. And all the truths of the Bible are transcendent in nature. Why? Because they come from God. They are the truths of God given to us. And so when the Bible talks about truth, it's many times talking about this transcendent truth. 
Jesus would say it this way. In John chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, Alethes, because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. So Jesus is saying, I came from God. And so everything I say to you is from God. It is absolutely, universally, transcendently true, which is why the words of Jesus and the Bible are so important. Now, that's the first uses of true or truth in the Bible. But then I point out in the book, and this should deeply encourage you, that there's a second way the word truth is used in the New Testament, and that's to refer to personal truth. And personal truth is just as much true, but it's a very different kind of truth. Personal truth are the things that are true, quite frankly, about you, and many times only about you. It's the truth of you, Richard. And the great example of how Jesus would use this word in the New Testament is found in John chapter 4. Remember the woman at the well? And he's meeting with the woman at the well, and he's kind of grilling her about her personal life because... He's Jesus and can do that. And listen to what the text says. It says, the woman answered him, hey, I have no husband, because he had said, go get your husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you have right now is not your husband. And then he says, what you have said is true, alathes or alatheia. So let me ask you, is the fact that this woman, having five husbands and now living with a man who's not her husband, is that a universal, absolute, transcendent truth? No. It's true for her. It's not true for everybody else. But it is the truth of her life. And the point is, is that the Bible honors this personal truth that we all have, the unique truth of our circumstances, of our temperament, of our, of our life. And the point is, God knows that, he's interested in that, and he even wants to guide you in that. So let's go back right now to John chapter 16. And the question is, when it says that the spirit is the spirit of truth, that he wants to guide us in all truth, the question is, is this referring to transcendent truth or personal truth? What do you think the answer is? Yes. You guys awake with me here? I told you, you have to put on your thinking caps. Yes, he's referring here to transcendent truth. We know that from the context, because he's gonna say all that I have from the Father, I give to the Spirit and the Spirit gives to you. So he's talking about that transcendent truth there. But I also believe, because other scriptures will tell us this, that he's referring to personal truth and the fact that the Spirit is about helping guiding you, not just your understanding of God, but also in your life, your circumstances, the personal nature of your very daily activity. This is rich stuff that Jesus is giving us here. And so once we get this, that the Spirit's job is to guide us into the truth we need to live life this side of heaven, the truth of God transcendently and the truth of our own lives personally, the only question we need to ask and answer now is how. I mean, how does the Spirit guide us? This is an important question because it says in the text here, Jesus says that the Spirit is going to speak to you, that he's going to disclose certain things to you. And you have to ask the question, whoa, how's he gonna do that? Because most of us don't hear an audible voice from God. Most of us don't have that kind of understanding of the speaking thing. So what vehicles or methods will God use to speak and disclose this truth to us? And the answer, I warn you, is both mind-blowing and life-giving 
Because what Jesus and the Bible will go on to make clear is that there is one primary thing that the, script, that the Spirit will use to guide us into truth, but then it's followed up by some secondary and sundry ways that are also important. And so let's call these two buckets biblical revelation, and for lack of better terms, I'm gonna call it individual revelation. Now don't freak out some of you who have been in church a long time, I'm not going off the deep end, but this is very biblical. Biblical revelation and individual revelation. Let me walk you through briefly each one. Obviously, the primary way that God speaks to his people, and many of you who've been around the Christian block more than once know this, is through the Bible and the revelation that God has given us in the Bible. And quite frankly, that's what Jesus is setting up here in John chapter 16. He's kind of foreshadowing that this will happen. Look at what he says. He says, he will not speak on his own initiative, meaning the spirit, but whatever he hears from the father and the son, he will speak and disclose to you what is to come. Now here's what you need to remember, gang. These words originally were not given to you and me, were they? They were given to the 11 disciples, not Judas, because he had already left. So there wasn't 12, there was 11. And so he's telling them that after he ascends into heaven, the Spirit is going to speak to them, disclose certain things to them. And isn't it interesting that about a quarter of them would actually go on to pen the New Testament? So you have people like Peter, who was in that crowd, that would write a couple of epistles and then also influence Mark, who would write a gospel. You got John in this crowd, who wrote a gospel and then three epistles. And then you got Matthew in this crowd, who would go on to write a gospel. So that's not coincidental that Jesus says that the Spirit's going to speak to you. They wrote it down. Now watch this. And now the Spirit speaks to us through this book. You see, this isn't made up stuff. This is very real. Uh, the Holy Spirit now wants to take that which has been revealed and as you and I read it, as I teach it, as you engage in Bible study, as you have devotions, as you listen to radio preachers, however you get it, God says he now wants to speak to you through his word. It's called biblical revelation. It's the primary way the Spirit guides us into the truth. But then... There is a further way, and that is that the Spirit also speaks, I believe, and the Bible affirms this greatly, into our individual lives, personal truth, and this is why that personal aspect is important that I mentioned earlier, he speaks personal truth to our personal circumstances, especially when we need it most. And you're saying, how does he do this? There's actually various ways that the scripture outlines one of the ways is that the Spirit speaks what the Bible calls his still, small voice into our spirit. Nudges, impressions. He guides you from the Spirit to your spirit in what you need to do. This is very biblical. In 1 Kings 19, you might remember, Elijah is really bummed and depressed. He has done spiritual battle with Jezebel on Mount Carmel, and then he's hightailing it through the desert. He's fatigued, he's tired, and he essentially says to God, I've had it, I'm done. And so he's in the cleft of the mountain there, kind of hiding out, and the scripture says that this wind came by, and in the rushing wind, there was no voice, and then a slow wind came by. And in that slow wind, there was a still, small voice, and out of that still, small voice, out of that little wind, God spoke to Elijah. And you see, I think God does that today. 
There's times where he speaks his voice even into our lives, his still small voice, giving us nudges and impressions of what we need to do in a timely way. A second way that he also speaks to our personal, circum, or personal lives is through circumstances. This one is inarguable. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, it says, Paul the apostle was trying to go to a particular city, watch this, and the Spirit blocked him from doing so. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Spirit sometimes blocks you from doing something that you think is right and God knows is wrong and circumstantially he brings things into your life to say, don't go in that direction? Does God ever do that, yes or no? Of course he does. He's not trying to rain on your parade. He's trying to protect you. And God moves and breathes through the circumstances of our lives because he loves you and he's involved in your life. But make no mistake, it's the Spirit who is guiding you even at times through your circumstances. And then notice a third way that God speaks, and you're going to love this one or you're going to hate it, depending on where you're at in your spiritual life, but he uses others to speak to us, right? That's why we need each other. The famous story here is of David, and I think it's in first or Second Samuel chapter 12. David has sinned with Bathsheba. He has killed her husband so that he could have Bathsheba, and he's king and thinks he can get away with anything. And do you remember who God brings into his life? Nathan. And Nathan comes into his life and essentially says, dude, you have no idea what you have done. You have transgressed the law of God. You've done something so evil and sinful. And he does it through telling him a parable, a story. And David, through Nathan, hears God speak to him, is convicted of his sin, eventually would write Psalm 51. You can read it later, which is a psalm of repentance. But it all came because God chose Nathan to speak to David. Again, I ask you, does God do that today? Could God use other people to speak to us and guide us, but it's really coming from his spirit? The answer is yes. And so just not this way that God uses these highly personal ways to speak to us, all empowered by his spirit, as what Jesus is getting at here, the spirit of truth. Two vehicles, biblical revelation and individual revelation. Now, at this point, I need to make something really, really clear. So some of you I see are getting kind of glassy-eyed and you're starting to think of lunch or breakfast or brunch. I need you to dial in right now because this is really important. And a lot of Christians mess up what I'm about to share with you. So here it is. The reason that the primary method, meaning God using biblical revelation to speak to us, is called the primary method is because it acts as a backstop of truth of which any and all individual truth must be matched up against. In other words, it would be impossible for you to get an individual word from God, a nudge, an impression, or a circumstantial word for God. He opened up this door. Or even what other people might say to you. It'd be impossible to get that kind of revelation from God that would go against biblical revelation or not be in line with biblical revelation. This is really important. The Bible is our backstop when it comes to how we discern the truth of the Spirit. And the reason I call it a backstop is because here's how it works. You're standing at the plate of life, <laughs> and you got your bat, and you're ready to swing and take your best shot at all the things coming your way. But life as we know it can throw us a curveball, amen? And so that curveball's coming your way, and you think you know how you need to swing at it, and you even say, I've heard from God, I know what to do. And all of a sudden you swing at it, and what happens? 
you miss. You didn't hear God right. You completely messed that up. But here's the good news is that as that ball whizzes by you, even if the catcher doesn't catch it, there's a backstop for the Christian. And that backstop is the word of God, which will never let you down, which will always tell you that which is right. And this is such an important issue because I hear Christians all the time tell me, well, God said this and God said that. And, and again, I, I don't like to embarrass people. I really don't. But there is a reason I carry this thing around with me because I'll say to them, you know, when they say, God said this, God said that, I'll just say, well, tell me, where, where in the Bible does it say that? Because I can show you in the Bible where it actually says the opposite of that. Let's use this example. This is really relevant right now. You're going to love this. It's tax time. Do you guys understand that? So in less than a month right now, we have to all pay the government that which is due. And even though Trump said that it all be, you know, less, I don't know, it's not that much less for me, but I guess it is a little bit, but, but it's tax time. And, and there is a great temptation for every one of us in America to just tell a few, let's call them white lies when it comes to our taxes, Right. Maybe to, you know, declare this even though I can't really prove it. Or, you know, to say I gave this even though I can't really prove it. Or, or, or to do whatever you might do. Because we get very creative uh, to try to not give the government its due. And even Christians do it all the time. And, and we think it's okay. And I hear the rationale all the time of why we do it. I mean, again, I've been around the block a long time. They say, well, the government's bad and God could really use the money. You know, and, it, and it's just a white lie. I mean, it's not like I'm doing a huge lie as if there's a difference between white lies and other color lies. Or, you know, it's not that big of a sin. I mean, you know, and or God understands. I mean, Jamie says he's a God of grace. I've heard all the excuses that people give. Here's the problem. As you're up at that, that plate of life and you're swinging with your taxes and you justify what you're doing by somehow thinking that God is on your side... That's a curveball that you just missed. And when you go to the backstop of the word of God, <laughs> here's what you read. Again, I'm not trying to rain on your parade. This is real stuff. Leviticus 19, verse 11. Do not lie. It's really clear. And again, I know how weasley some of you are. You're saying, well, that's the Old Testament. That was given to Israel. Okay, let's look at the New Testament. <laughs> you just said it. Mark 12, verse 17 exact issue going on here where the disciples are, not disciples, but some of the people are basically saying to Jesus, why do we have to pay taxes, man? Caesar is evil. I mean, this is a corrupt Roman government. I mean, we really shouldn't be giving them any money. And what did Jesus do? He took one of those coins that had a picture of Caesar engraved on it. And what does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In a sense, he's saying, just pay the IRS. I'm in control of your life. I love you. I want to call you to a, a separated, godly, set-apart life in which I can use you. Stop fudging. That's what the word of God says. And by the way, I mean, I'm being light on you guys because I could talk about marriage. I could talk about business, business ethics. I could talk about theology. It's all the same. There are times we're swinging at life and it's so tempting when you hear of individual revelation to say, well, God said this and God said that. That's fine. He does speak to us. He does use our circumstances. He does use other people, but he will never, ever transgress the word of God. His primary revelation when it comes to what he says to you. That's your ace in the hole, like it or not. Now, 
Before we move on to wrap this up, I want to show you one other absolutely amazing thing that Jesus shares with us here in John 16 about the Spirit guiding us into what is right and real. And I know that we've covered a lot today. I felt it when I was preparing this. I mean, we've already covered the dual ideas of transcendent and personal truth, aletheia. We've covered biblical revelation and individual revelation and which comes first. But there is one more point worth noting before we move on that will be incredibly encouraging to you. And it's this, that as the Spirit guides us into all truth, he will only give us what we can handle in each successive season of our lives. In other words, that old saying that God will never give you more than you can handle is eminently true in John 16 here when it talks about the Spirit's guiding of us. Look again at verse 12 and you will see what I mean. Jesus starts this whole discussion by saying this, I have many more things to say to you, here it is, but you cannot bear them right now. Now again, to be very true to the Bible, we have to understand the original context. These words were not originally said to us, though they pertain to us, they were said to the 11 disciples. And the 11 disciples, you might remember at this point, were confused, they were scared, they were massively overwhelmed. Their savior, who they've been following around for three years, is about ready to be arrested, tried, crucified. And then he had predicted he would rise from the dead, but they're kind of hazy on that. And then ascended to heaven, all within a matter of about seven weeks. And so their lives are about to change drastically. And so contextually, Jesus is right. He's saying, I got a lot of things I want to say to you guys because I'm going to propel you into the deep end spiritually here after I ascend into heaven, but you can't bear them right now. And by the way, even after he ascended into heaven, do you know how long it took for Jesus to reveal these things through the spirit that would become eventually the New Testament? Anybody have an idea how long it was? A minimum of about 60 years. So we know the book of Galatians came first, written somewhere around 41, 42 AD, and then all the other books sort of fell into place. The Gospel of John was the last New Testament, I'm sorry, the Revelation of John. The book of Revelation was the very last book to be written by John on the island of Patmos, and it was written somewhere around 90 AD. And so God wasn't kidding, or Jesus wasn't kidding here, where he says, I got a lot of things to say to you, but in my time. And over time, because you can't bear it all right now. I kind of almost hear Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth, right? (laughs) I mean, that's kind of what Jesus is saying to them in a loving way. I like how one author says it. He says, these are vistas of truth that they are not ready for. And here's the issue I need need to wrestle with right now. Could it be that the same is true for you and me today, yes or no? I think so. I can't prove it biblically. I mean, these words, again, were to the original disciples, but I think that Jesus is telling us something in here as well, that for those of us who would hear these words 2,000 years later, that there would be an aspect in which he says that as the spirit of truth invades your life, and as the spirit of truth will take biblical revelation and individual revelation and reveal to you the things that you need to live life, It's not going to be all at once. We're all at different places. We're all growing, hopefully. And God is going to pace your sanctification because he knows what you need 
and he knows when you need it. You know, one of the reasons I found this so incredibly encouraging is that as I sat in my home office this week putting together my message for you guys, I I thought of the last 40 years of my life. It has been a special week for me because my spiritual birthday happened this week. March 11th, 1981, I accepted the Lord as my Savior. I was 17 years old. And so 38 years ago this week, I accepted the Lord. And so kind of a special week. And and I sat there in my home office and and I made four columns on my piece of paper, and I thought of the four decades since I've known the Lord. I thought of the 80s, I thought of the 90s, I thought of the 2000s and beyond. And I started to jot down what it is the Spirit guided me into in each decade. As I walk you through this, you need to do this for your own life. However long you've known the Lord, this week, sit down and just write down, however you wanna parse it out, I don't care how you do it, but just parse it out into different seasons and ask yourself, what is it that the Spirit has revealed to me in each season? I was blown away by this. I mean, for the first two years of my Christianity, basically, God was helping me go from religion to relationship. He was helping me learn how to read the Bible and how to pray, and that's about it. I didn't concern myself with anything more. I mean, I was just getting my feet wet. I was in what C.S. Lewis calls that first fervor. I was just sort of hanging on for dear life. But then in the rest of the 1980s, about an eight-year period, I realized in hindsight that God needed to rework my entire value system and my understanding of him. I had so much stinking thinking in me that I wrote this down. He had to rework my sexuality, my my view of substances, alcohol, tobacco, things like that, because I was mired in all that stuff. He had to rework my view of marriage. He had to rework my view of money. Most importantly, he had to rework my doctrine. Because I had all these views of God and most of them, because I'd never read the Bible, were wrong. And that was a huge wrestling process for me. It was not easy at all. I was in seminary in the late 80s. I was wrestling with doctrines of grace and Arminian things and eschatology and all these things. And it's like God had me at a headlock. And it was painful at times. But that was the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, I went into what I call a decade, you're going to love this, of relational repentance. You're saying, what does that mean? Well, in the 1980s, I basically covered all the personal things in my life that had to do with me and God. But in the 1990s, I found myself married, having children, and being estranged from my father and having a really difficult relationship with him. Then I found myself in counseling, dealing with all these family of origin issues and dealing with some of my addictions. And it all had to do with the relationships around me. And God had to totally rework my view of what a godly, healthy, truth-telling, forgiving, loving relationship looks like. And to boot, I was now a pastor, an associate pastor in my first church. (laughs) So I had to deal with church people. That was really hard. And and I had to deal with all the, the things that go on with community. And God reworked my whole view of what Christian community looks like. And here's what I realized this week is that all the things that I had to deal with in the 90s, now watch this, God knew I wasn't ready for in the 80s. There was an entire decade, the first decade of my Christianity, where God said, we're gonna put all this on hold, because why? You cannot bear them right now, Jamie. I have other things that I need to do in your life, and I love you so much that we're gonna pace this out. 
And then I get to the 2000s and beyond, and again, I'm not going to bore you with all that, but as I've come here and gone into senior pastor, and I now deal with business community and the culture at large and what the biblical response should be for that, and God has grown me tremendously. I know some of you don't believe it, it's true. In the last two decades, in my understanding of him, and here's why this is so encouraging, gang, is that as we experience verse 12 in our lives, I have many more things to say to you, Jamie, but you cannot bear them right now. We're trusting in the timing and pace of the Holy Spirit. And he loves you, and he knows you, and he's for you. Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can be against you. And the Spirit loves you so much that he's willing to go at a pace in your life that he knows you can handle. That should encourage you no matter what you're going through right now. It's no confusion at all. It's no secret that you're at the season you're at right now. And as you're submitting to God, he knows what he is doing. And let me answer a question some of you are thinking right now because you're in frustrating circumstances. Were there times in the 80s and the 90s and even in the 2000s where I was frustrated and angry? I know it's hard to picture me getting that way, but where I was frustrated and angry with God's timing in my life, yes or no? Yes! There were times where I would yell out to God and I would say, why? Help me understand this. I don't get it. I don't understand this right now. And he wouldn't answer me. I'd get stone cold silence for years on end in certain aspects of my life. My wife always says hindsight is twenty twenty. In hindsight, I look now and go, okay, I see what he was doing. I wasn't ready for that. And what that teaches me now at the age of 55, and this is really exciting for me, is that I'm guessing that there are further things that God wants to grow me in, amen? He didn't have to say it that quickly, but there are things that God wants to grow me in. And there are things that he wants to reveal to me in the next decade, and should I live longer the next decade? And here's the cool thing about them, is that I can trust him for that. So in a very real way, I'm, I'm saying this. If this is where you're standing right now, and you're trusting God to the best of your ability, stand completely open to him. So don't close yourself off from his revelation, either in the word of God or in the individual realm. Stand completely open to him, but don't try to get ahead of him. Don't try to demand from him what you think that you need. Part of being guided by the spirit is to allow the spirit to be the one in his timing to guide you. It's John chapter 3. Jesus says, the wind blows where it will. You do not see where it's coming. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is very mysterious that way, but he's fully worth trusting in your life. Now, that was point one, and we're just about completely out of time. And so let's wrap up today by noting one final thing that Jesus tells us, but this is really important about the Spirit's guidance in our lives. And this one kind of pulls it all together, and it's this, and that is that the Holy Spirit does this, this kind of guidance in your life, in order to reveal Jesus to you. That's really important. In other words, watch this, gang. The Spirit doesn't guide you just to guide you and make you happy. That's a nice American thought, isn't it? 
that the Spirit exists to guide me when I need it, to bring me happiness when I want it, end of story. Man, that is so not true. In fact, there'll be times where, as we've seen today, and some of you have felt it already, like when I talk about taxes and other things, where the Spirit is going to guide you, and you ain't going to be happy about it. In fact, you're going to sit there and go, I I wish you wouldn't guide me this way. But again, you're going to trust him because he knows what he's doing, and you know where your bread is buttered. But here's the point. He is guiding you not just to guide you and not just to make you happy. He's guiding you so that you can get closer to your Savior relationally and personally. And his name is Jesus. This is why Bruner calls the Holy Spirit the shy person of the Trinity. Because the Spirit is so shy, he's always pointing to Jesus. And you're saying, where's that found? Uh, Look at one last time at Jesus' words here. And again, this was easy to miss when we read through it earlier, but hopefully now you'll see it in, in glaring yellow. Jesus says, he, the Spirit, shall glorify me. He shall take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. I I laugh because it sounds like Jesus is rather self-obsessed here, don't you think? I mean, he talks about mine, mine, mine. If this was a three-year-old, what would we say? The world doesn't revolve around you, Jesus. But this is the Son of God speaking, the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, And so obviously, he can't be self-obsessed here, at least in a negative way. So what is he saying here? He's saying that the goal of the Christian life, and many of us know this, all centers around our Savior and Lord. He's our forgiver. He's our redeemer. He's our Savior. He's our friend. He is everything to us. When, when Jesus says that he, the Spirit, will glorify me, I've taught you guys this before, but that word glorify literally means radiance, brilliance, expression, illuminate. It basically, what Jesus is saying here, if you put it in non-religious language, is that the Spirit shines the light on Jesus so we can see him better. See, here's what you don't, some of you don't understand. God is not interested in you just believing in God. God is interested in you being enamored and focused each moment of each day on Jesus, your Savior. He's the one who's advocating for you at the Father's right hand. He's the one who takes all from the Father, gives it to the Spirit so that you can have the truth that you have. He's the one who walks with you during very, very dark times and lets you know that it's okay. Maybe look at it this way. I've told you this before, but if God is way up here and humanity's down here and we live in a world which everybody's trying to reach God, which is what all world religions are about, it's what you know, transcendental meditation is about and Kabbalah and, and Scientology, I mean, everybody's trying their own way to find God, but the gap is too big. Most of us understand that. What you need to know happened in Jesus, now watch this, is that God came down to you. And he became a human being for you. And he related to your life. And as Hebrews 4 says, he now understands and is able to sympathize with everything you're going through. And then just to show how powerful he is, after he died for your sins, he rose up again to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God the Father and intercedes on our behalf and even directs your life as your friend, but now one who has bridged the gap. So maybe now you can see why it's important that the Holy Spirit's job 
is to reveal Jesus deeper in our lives because it all comes back to Jesus. So in summary, it's a really good thing that God has given us his Holy Spirit. Why? Because we all need guidance. We all need to be guided into what is real and right, personal truth, transcendent truth. And God does this through his word primarily and then through other ways because he loves you so much. And he does all of this to help you draw closer to Jesus. Be encouraged today, Christian. He loves you. He never forsakes you. He is with you and he's given you his spirit in order to show you that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the richness of Jesus' teaching here. Four verses that we've just broken the surface on. I pray, God, that we might assimilate these things into our lives. I pray, God, that as all of us realize that there are times we need guidance, that we would then turn our focus to you, open up ourselves fully to you, and say, by your spirit, would you please guide me? Help me to understand your word rightly, Lord. Help me to understand and discern between your voice and circumstances and others, always with your word as a backstop. And thank you, God, that in our lives, you never give us more than you know that we need at any one time. And Father, in all of this, just hammer home to us that it's all about Jesus. It's all about guiding us into a right relationship with him so that as we walk with you, you walk with us. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.